at Montmorency Community Church, our, our purpose of why we exist, why we're here, is that we are to give everyone an opportunity in this church and in our wider community, the opportunity to know and to follow Jesus Christ. And we believe that will happen when we are a people that are blessing others in this place and blessing others in our community. Intentionally serving each other and the community and loving people. And when people feel like they belong in this place, that people feel like they're not coming here and being judged, that they are welcome and safe and believe. We want to see people believe in Jesus Christ as their Saviour and Lord. We want to see lives changed and transformed, baptisms of new believers, testimonies, like the one we heard this morning of Bailey, isn't that just fantastic? Testimonies of people talking about giving their life to Christ. And that's the reason we're spending the back half of this year in the book of Romans. We want to see life-changing transformation and bring this letter there's going to be a number of Sundays through the over this next few months uh, and we'll let, make them known to you where we intentionally prepare we're going to be presenting a gospel message and an invitation to accept Jesus and it would be a good thing I think to be mindful of someone perhaps that you could in- <coughs> Uh, deliberately invite to a Sunday in the coming months. 400 years ago in August, a German monk and professor in the University of Wittenberg in Germany began a course of biblical lectures. And at the time he was really struggling with the issue of how to get right with God. How do we get right with God? He was puzzled by Romans 1.17, the righteousness of God is revealed through faith. How could the righteousness of God save a sinner like him? Didn't God's righteousness actually condemn sinners? Didn't it tell them how bad they are? And he penned this letter, this, these notes. I greatly longed to understand Paul's letter to the Romans and nothing stood in the way but this one expression, the righteousness of God, because I took it to mean that the righteousness whereby God is righteous and acts righteously in punishing the unrighteous. Night and day I pondered until I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is through his grace and mercy. He justifies us by faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and this message became a gateway to heaven for me. That German monk you might well know is Martin Luther and through this belief, the the, the movement of the Christian renewal in Europe in the 16th century known as the Protestant Reformation began. 200 years later, in the 18th century, an unwilling and unconverted Anglican clergyman who was a graduate of Oxford University. He'd been a member of an earnest Christian society nicknamed the Holy Club and he'd done a stint of missionary work in North America but he had returned back home disillusioned and at a house meeting someone was reading Martin Luther's introduction to Romans. 
the clergyman recorded in his journal, about quarter before nine, while the reader was describing the change wherein God works in the heart through faith in Jesus Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed and I felt then and only then did I trust in Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance came over me that he had taken away my sins, even my sins, and saved me from the law of sin and death. And of course, that clergyman's name was John Wesley. Became to be the great open-air preacher in England in the 18th century. It's said that he spoke over 40,000 sermons. His brother Charles Wesley wrote over 6,000 hymns. Not a bad duo to get along to a family night here one night. Romans is often referred to as the centrepiece and the theological jewel of the New Testament. God has used this letter over thousands of years to both save and encourage and bless and teach, instruct millions of people. And the prayerful expectation in the next coming months is that that will happen here at Monty. Paul is the author, as we just read, of Romans. He dictated it and Tertius put the pen to paper or to scroll or whatever he was using in Corinth in Greece in around 57 AD. That letter, when it was finished, was actually given to Phoebe, a deaconess from uh, from a church in uh, Centuria, which is not far from where Corinth is. And Phoebe was given that letter to actually deliver it to the church in Rome. I just wonder about the the knowledge that she would have had about what she was actually holding on to and the protection that God would have given her as she travelled over 1,200 kilometres to get to Rome. God knew what was happening. God knew what she had. It was the truth of the gospel and she took it to this church in Rome. Paul hadn't actually been to Rome. He didn't plant the church in Rome, but he was planning to get to Rome. He ended up getting to Rome as a prisoner. Not that that actually bothered Paul that much. A church that was predominantly Gentile, but there were Jews there also. And this letter to this church was preparing the way for him to come to visit them. It was letting them know, this is what I am all about, the gospel of Jesus Christ. He identifies himself in the very first verse. He says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. Different translations might have bondservant or slave of Jesus Christ. The word used there is doulos. And it's translated literally slave or bondservant. Its primary meaning is to bound someone to something or someone else. There were thousands of doulos in the society that Paul was living in. Thousands of slaves. Some were horribly mistreated. Some were honoured and treated well. And in most cases they had all been bought at a price. The Hebrew equivalent is mentioned hundreds of times in the Old Testament. If you go to Exodus 21, 
it talks about the, the slave who loves his master and his family and his wife and children that after the six years were up of having to be a slave for this, his master, he would actually want to stay on and be with that master. The master would take his ear and pierce it and it would mark that he belongs to him, that they are bound together. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians six nineteen to 20, you, to the Christians, you are not your own. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Jesus gave his life for you. You choose life. You choose Jesus. You choose to belong to him, be bound to him, his bondservant, and do as he pleases. And you see, just in that one word, Paul is, is starting to entrench into the minds of the, the church there at, Romans, at Rome the idea that we have been bought at a price, that our master is no longer ourselves with our selfish egos, our pride and our selfish desires, but we are his doulos, his slave, his bondservant. We are bound to Christ. He has bought us. We are his. He also identifies himself as an apostle. Unlike the other apostles who had seen the risen Messiah, who had been commissioned by the risen Messiah, Paul's calling was different. It was, a, as you well know, a, a direct communication from heaven on the road to Damascus in the, uh, when Jesus, at his conversion... And it's not a title that he earns. It's not a title that Paul has given himself. He's called by God to be an apostle. Set apart for the gospel. Euangelion. I can't tell you how many times I practiced that. I tried to get that right, make sure I say it right. I don't want to stuff that one up. Means good news. The word for gospel means good news. It was a common word. It was used regularly in society. You would, you would hear that from, from, uh, from, the, from the government of the time, the emperor, you know, there's euangelion. People would listen, there's good news. You'd come home, you'd say, euangelion, there's good news, family. Collingwood won last night. <laughs> no, they didn't actually, no. <laughs> uh, uh, <coughs> But Paul uses this common word and, it, and he states here, it's not euangelion, it's not my good news. I don't bring you my good news. I don't bring the good news of the emperor. I'm bringing the good news of God. It's God's gospel. It's his good news. And this good news, Paul says in verse 2 to 5, is about Jesus Christ promised and spoken about in the Old Testament from the prophets. Born from the bloodline of King David, declared to be God in flesh, his power on display through his resurrection. That through him we have a calling to tell others of this good news, to see people saved from a slavery of sin 
to be a slave of Jesus. One who belongs and serves their master. This is the gospel. It's God's good news. And Paul's response to the gospel In verse 14 to 16, he says these things. I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel, also to you who are at Rome. I am not ashamed of the gospel. And he brings out these three words about his attitude and response to the gospel. He's obligated, he's eager, and he's unashamed. I wonder how you are challenged by those three words when you not worry about anybody else in this room, but you just worry about yourself, your own life. Do you actually feel obligated? Is it really my responsibility? I mean... Now I'm saved, I'm a Christian. There are so many out there, out and about, doing that thing and telling everyone about Jesus. Is it really my responsibility? How eager, how eager are you to share the gospel? I interact with a couple hundred customers a day in the shop and you get all types of people. Uh, just to mention a few, you can get someone that comes up and you're like, good morning, how are you going? Small latte takeaway, thanks. <laughs> I'm like, really? You look like a dirty chai sort of a person. But <clears throat> And then you, you've got um, the people that come, you know, when you've got so busy and there's a queue and there's people everywhere, it's really obvious you're under the pump and all they want to do is just unload what's going on in their day because that's their break time they've come down and they want you to know everything what's going on I'm being overworked I've got to present something to the board I've got a meeting I'm going to be here till 7pm I'm exhausted I can't deal with you right now I'm busy but you have to you have to listen you have to keep going otherwise they go somewhere else there's cafes everywhere <coughs> and then there's this one fella I won't mention his name in case he actually listens to this recording. Uh, he doesn't talk. He just just gives the wave when he wants a coffee. Just just that one as he walks past. I'm like, okay, I'll get on to it. Really, really respectful. But then there's the majority who are polite and like to talk to you and see, especially on a Monday, how was your weekend? That's the number one question you'll get. And I've been, made a conscious decision, no matter what I've been doing on the weekend, to make sure I mention something about church. Uh, just whether it's just that we're at church, or that I was speaking, or I'm going to share, or we've got some guests from overseas. Um, a lot of the time the comments are ignored, and the conversation moves on to football or something else, or their work. But there have been quite a few times when conversations have then started, if not at that time, another time. 
and the opportunity to share what I believe and share my faith. And I have never been as eager to share what I believe and what I know is the truth that I am today. Eager to share the good news. Are you ashamed of the gospel? Ashamed it might offend? Ashamed you might be left out? It might end a friendship. You might face rejection. I dare say at one point or another, all of us here have felt ashamed of the gospel in a time when we perhaps we didn't actually speak up when we could have. When we went into our shell, when we could have stood up and said the truth. Paul wasn't ashamed. He wasn't scared of the consequences. He took every opportunity to share the good news. What a wonderful example. He was stoned, shipwrecked, beaten, run out of cities. They tried to murder him because he was unashamed of telling people that Jesus Christ had died for their sins. He went to jail because he stood up for the gospel and he shared the truth of Jesus. He went to jail and told the jailer about Jesus and the jailer was saved and his family was saved because he was unashamed of the gospel. As I thought about this shame during the week, when shame pops up and says, this is too much for you, rejection, abandonment. It's too hard, give up. How do we deal with shame? Hebrews 12.2 says this, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. When Jesus was laughed at and beaten and paraded around naked and mocked and murdered, shame didn't get the better of Jesus. There was no giving up. He despised the shame. His attitude was to look beyond the here and now and look what was to come. A resurrection, forgiveness of sins, a commission for his disciples to follow and for us and to be seated at the right hand of God. If we are to be unashamed of the good news, we can't be so caught up in the emotion and experience of life day to day. Fix our eyes on Jesus. Consider him. Look to him. Because for what is to come for us is eternity in his presence.
You may be laughed at. You may be abandoned by friends and family. You may be mocked, beaten, and in a lot of the parts of the world, murdered. But let us not give in to shame. Because Jesus is coming. And the suffering and pain of this life will pale into insignificance when we are with him face to face. Paul was obligated to share God's good news. He was eager to share God's good news and he wasn't ashamed to share God's good news. Why? Why was he eager and obligated and not ashamed? Well, the reason is is in two verses and they are very well known and they are the theme for the book of Romans. To grasp these two verses is important to then understand the rest of the series in Romans and the rest of this letter. And to understand these two verses is life-changing. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith. From first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. I want to just look at four key words this morning that from this definition of the gospel, from Paul's expansion of the gospel that he will go into in in the rest of the letter of Romans, just take out four key words to to really break down and look at from this, these two verses. The first one is, is power. The gospel is the power of God. The good news about Jesus Christ has power. The, the, the word for power, which you probably know is dunamis, we get our word dynamite from. And Paul has in mind the fact that the gospel of Christ carries with it the omnipotence of God, the all-powerful God is the author of it. We sang about that this morning, the author of salvation. He is the driving force behind it, saving and changing people. You know, humans actually want change. We often talk about, oh, we really struggle with change. But I think humans actually want change. People want things to be different than what they actually are. Uh, People often want to experience different things. They want better things. They want to feel better, look better. And humanity across thousands of years has always searched for some sort of real change in their life and it has led people to do all sorts of things and believe in all types of gods but people can never change anything about their uh, immoral and corrupt life that we are born into Jesus said to religious leaders in Matthew twenty two twenty nine, when they tried to trip him up, he said, you are in error because you don't know the scriptures and you do not know the power of God. 
The gospel of Jesus Christ has the power to change people. While people have tried all sorts of things to change themselves, the Bible says that doing good works won't change you. Saying the right things won't change you. Going to the right places won't change you. Having a Christian parent won't change you. Coming to church every Sunday won't necessarily change you. Only faith in Jesus will save you and change you. There's no other way. And God is the source of an incredible power, an unlimited power that can transform lives. Just these two quick verses in 1 Corinthians 18 and 23, the message of the cross, Paul said, is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are saved, it is the power of God. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those who are called... Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And in Corinthians 4, 1 Corinthians 4.20, Paul says, The kingdom of God is not in word, but power. Not only is being saved a show of God's power, but then he changes our heart and he changes our attitudes and he changes the way we think and he changes the way we speak. And that is his power at work. If you knew half the things that I've ever thought or done, you'd probably never, ever want to speak to me again. And before you get on your high horse and start thinking about what those things could be, just reflect on that statement for yourself. I have been powerfully rescued and saved. Powerfully forgiven. And Jesus equips me and he equips you to take that good news, which is his gospel, his good news, and to tell others about it, that they might accept it by faith, that God would do something powerful in their life, that they would be powerfully saved, they would be powerfully forgiven. And then God goes to work in their life, powerfully changing them. That they can then take the good news of God and share it with someone else and God would do a work in their life. And so on and so on. It's happened for thousands of years. God's power at work in both saving and transforming our lives. The Bible says that God has great power It talks so much about his power, his strong power, glorious power, mighty power, unsearchable power, irresistible, incomparable. By his power he has commanded the order of the universe and parted the sea. But I believe the greatest expression of his power is found in salvation. In making us right when we believe by faith in Jesus Christ as our Saviour and Lord. And He goes on to change us and transform us. The second word we want to take out of these two verses of this theme for Romans is the word salvation. The power of God 
for salvation. I mentioned just a minute ago about being rescued and delivered. It's actually the definition for what it means to be saved. It means to be rescued, to be delivered. And when you're rescued and you're delivered, you're not only rescued from something, but you're rescued into something. If you are drowning in the sea, you are drowning and you're being rescued from the waves and the currents where you can't breathe and you're rescued into a lifeboat or something where you are safe and you're in a place where you can breathe and survive. If you're in a car accident or a house fire, you, you are rescued out of a, a, a situation of, of where you're facing death or injury and you're rescued into a place of safety. We have been saved. We have been rescued from sin. We've been rescued from hell. We've been rescued from being under the power of sin, slave to sin. And we've been rescued into a relationship with God. We've been rescued into experiencing forgiveness, in having peace in this life, in the knowledge and the certainty of spending eternity with God in heaven. The power of God that brings salvation, that rescues, that saves. The third word I want to bring out is believe. If the power of God saves, who is saved? Just everyone that hears it? Absolutely not. For everyone that believes. Salvation's power is only operating through faith. Where there is faith, there is the power of God at work in salvation. Faith is believing. Hebrew 11 says, faith is sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. We live by faith in all different aspects of life. We recently went to the Gold Coast for a few days to the theme parks. You need some faith and trust to be able to go to those theme parks. It's a bit different to 20 years ago as a teenager. I'm sorry, teenager 20 years ago? Just, just. Uh, we went to this, uh, we took the girls to this water slide. They, they were more keen to go down these slides than Rachel and I were. It was a water slide that is completely dark inside. Uh, I've never been down one like that before. I will never go down another one like that before. It was very dark. In fact, you cannot see where you're going. You don't know what's coming until you get to the end. You don't know if it's going to go left or right or straight down or what it's doing. Uh, I think I had... I can't remember if I had Ava or Mackenzie with me going down that one. They were saying like, oh, it's going to do a loop, it's going to do a loop. I thought, it better not do a loop. (laughs) (coughs) My faith was in that water slide that I was trusting I would come out the same as the way I went in. (coughs) The power of God can save and it will save but it will save those who come to him and believe by faith. That Jesus died for our sins, that he was raised from the dead and he wants to be in a relationship with you 
that will transform your life. Believing believing by faith is not relevant to race. It's not relevant to wealth. It's not relevant to intellect. It's not relevant to any type of work. Lest any of us should boast. It is a gift of God. And the gospel of Christ has power. The gospel of Christ has power to save. It has power to save the one who believes. And the fourth word is righteousness. Because this is what actually changes a person. Verse 17 says, For in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith. Uh, righteousness is is spoken about constantly in the book of Romans, as you'll see in the coming months. It's a key theme for the book of Romans. And the righteousness of God is a reference to his absolute and definitive perfection in character. It references his incomparable position to judge the human race to forgive the human race, to give salvation to the person who believes by faith in Jesus, that we would be seen as holy and acceptable. If I am to be righteous, it's going to be nothing of what I bring to the table, to the relationship. It's all about what God gives me. It's his righteousness. And his righteousness is revealed in his gospel, in his good news. And it is revealed in the life of Jesus. The character and nature of Jesus Christ, the way Jesus lived, the way Jesus loved the poor, cared for the sinner, accepted the marginalised. This is the revelation of the righteousness of God. What we see in Jesus, what we read about of who Jesus was and who Jesus is, it tells us of who God is. It tells us of the perfection, the standard of who God is. He's perfect. That's his righteousness, his character. He is perfect. And his love and his life and his righteousness is made available to you. That's the transformation that he wants to have in your life. And this is the reason that since the very beginning of time that God has powerfully changed millions of people's lives. Because he makes his righteousness available to you, to be evident in your life. People will see the way you live and see something of Jesus Christ. 
and his righteousness. Not your righteousness, not your great character, but his character and his life. The righteousness that we experience in this life will never be experienced in its fullness. As we live this life and God imparts on us his righteousness, it is a battle because of the sinful nature. And it won't be until the day Jesus comes again will we experience in full the righteousness of God where there is no sin, a new body, perfect in his presence. I'm going to leave it there. This is the theme of Romans. This is the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. And I hope it whets the appetite for what is to come in the coming months as we allow and ask the Holy Spirit to teach us and to transform us. Lord God, thank you that your word is the truth. As Bailey told us this morning, it is timeless. And what was powerfully saving and changing the people in the church in Rome and across the world then, you are still using that today. And you want to use us. You want to use us sinners who have been saved by your grace. And you want to use us to take this message and share it with others. What a privilege. And at times it can seem daunting task. Lord God, I pray that you would enable and equip us, that our attitude would be one of Paul's, that we would feel obligated to our responsibility, we would be eager and unashamed to stand for the truth of the gospel. I pray a blessing upon your people as we go from this place. In Jesus' name, amen.